Hello and welcome to the Modern Maker Podcast. Today is Thursday, March 28th, otherwise known as Something on a Stick Day. Ooh. How about that, huh? That's pretty much going to be food. So here we go. I'm going to give a take right now and then you can tell me after if it's hot or not. I'm going to say, so for something on a stick, my mind went to corn dogs. Yes. And I'll say that corn dogs are better than hot dogs. Hot take or not Not a hot take? Um, no, I think... It's I mean, a- hot dogs are definitely more popular, but I think it's just because they're easier to cook. It's accurate. The, the, the best hot dog is better than the best corn dog. I guess because you, like, you can load it up with lots of right. items. I've, I've never had a bad corn dog or I've had bad hot dogs, right? So like... Yeah, the... Corn dogs hit the upper high consistency standard very yeah. well. <laughs> Higher floor, lower ceiling. Exactly. No, I, I, I do like dog. a good corn dog. Did you did you ever see Mike's uh, attempts I saw him, at yes, making? making corn dogs? And they weren't too far off of his attempts at skiing, which is why he's not here with us today. <laughs> yes. So we're a man down. Um, and that's because Mike, the our, our lovable third uh, partner here. Uh, went on a ski trip, I think with his family, right? Like his parents. I don't know if he's, or that, or with, I, I'm not sure who he was with. Yeah. I figured he was with a friend. So I, I'll tell you how I experienced it. So okay. I'm looking at Instagram and I see Mike actually did a, a permanent post of him wearing ski gear, kind of goofing around. And it, it's sort yeah. of funny. And I'm like, oh yeah, Mike's skiing. Well, he's, he's very like, prone to falling and a little bit on the clumsy <laughs> side. So <laughs> this should go well, right? He's also a risk taker. Yes. From everything that I, if, I mean, you see him on the motorcycle and everything yeah. and I'm always just like, oh God, I feel like a mom when I'm watching him. So I'm like, oh, that should be interesting. Then I look at his Instagram stories and it's like he, he spied a ski jump. Yeah. And I mean, do you ski or snowboard? I've gone one time. Yeah. I, I'm not like super into it, but I've, I've gone and... There's a big difference between being competent and getting downhill and learning how yeah. to actually take jumps. So uh, you see, you can see the whole thing unfolding in his Instagram stories. And he like goes over the jump. He doesn't really get air. And he's like, I think I presume he's holding his phone because he's filming as he's doing yeah. it, which is also not safe. You know, you, you see him progressively flirting with these ski jumps in <laughs> the Instagram stories and then no more stories. <laughs> just goes radio silent. And you're like, oh. Then I get a an Instagram direct message from uh, Mike's dad, who has like no pictures or anything like that. And oh, I was wow. like, so it looks like a spam account. And I almost never answer those, except his, yeah. except for the name I immediately recognized. So, and the the it's a very ominous message. It's just an Instagram DM that says. Hey, this is Mike's dad. Can you call me? And then the phone number. And I'm just like, Oh God! Oh my God! Like you know, <laughs> terrified. <That's not> good. <laughs> uh, so I call it, and you know, immediately I could tell by the t- tone of voice that everything was okay. Because I was like, Joey, yeah. oh hey, this is Mike's dad. No, yeah, yeah, he. Yeah, he's dead. He had an no. accident. He, he he got a concussion. Is in the hospital. So uh, he had a concussion, which I don't want to diminish because you know concussions are no joke obviously i mean there's no uh i've had a few in my day and they're they're sort of like a it's a broad category for head injury but they can be really severe or they can be something where you're just a little bit dizzy and uh so yeah mike got a little banged up um but didn't have to spend overnight in the hospital um and should be back to normal within a couple weeks or so yeah and i'm sure that we'll 
when he'll, I'm sure he'll be back on here next week even, and, and he'll tell us all about it then. Uh, yeah. We just couldn't, we couldn't let him come on. He's already prone to saying things that he might regret. So we definitely don't want him <laughs> in not being 100% lucid. Yeah, it was, it, it's funny how, yeah, you, you can't tell Mike to be careful because, I mean, you, <laughs> I do often. You can tell him. He won't listen. Yes. Uh, but then he, you know, hopefully discovers it in a non-fatal way and then adjusts his behavior accordingly. Right. Just a little little flirting with disaster. Yeah, but no, skiing's, skiing's dangerous. Like, <laughs> I, I know a lot of people that have had, like, really serious, like, like, back injuries, broken bones, uh, near death, uh, experiences all, all while going, you know, 35 miles an hour downhill on ice. It's, I think that's, it's one of those things where like you look at snow and you're like, Oh, it's like a big pillow. So I can just go ahead and be nuts out here and do whatever I want. And you're like, eh, people run into trees and there's all kinds of things that can happen. Yes. Polar bears. (laughs) Well, yeah, you run into a tree and then there's a polar bear in it. Awesome. Not a good day. So what have you been working on? A lot of editing lately. I feel like that's normally your your go-to because yeah. you're editing the whole <laughs> Container House series. But um, I had built a lot of things like in preparation for you guys coming out last week and just put off all of the editing. And then, you know, once you guys left, I was like, oh man, there's a week left this month in this month and I have to completely edit and put out two videos. So been doing that the past couple of days. One of the videos went out I guess it would be two days ago when you're listening to this. And that was on a this old um, TV console, this really big one that I had built like five years ago. Basically, like it was just a really quick build that I needed to do when we were rearranging our room that I had never quite completed and that now we're re-rearranging our room. So I was actually giving that piece away, but I wanted to kind of like fix it up and, and finish off my original intent with it before I said goodbye to it for good. And then... Um, Another video that should be out this Saturday, which is the the California inlay table that I think I already talked about that before. So I won't go into that again. But with the last video, it was interesting. So the big conundrum that I had with it was because I had built the box portion of it basically like five years ago. I don't have any footage of that, obviously. So I was debating, like, how do I turn this into a complete video? So I figured, well, I've already shown how to build boxes multiple times, which, you know, it's, it's going to be 95% the same as any of those that I've done. So I thought, well, I could just like show old footage and talk about it. And then I thought, well, I already do all the like SketchUp animation stuff in the video. So why don't I just do like a really long one where I go through like the complete, here's what exists so far. Here's how, here's like all the details of all the cuts you would need to make for the vertical partitions and the doors and the back panel and everything that's going to go into it and how you would assemble it. So it's sort of like a I don't know, three minute little crash course to get you brought up to speed and sort of replace what would normally be like six minutes of building a box. And I think, I don't know, I'm, I'm interested to hear people's reaction to it. So far, it's been good. But um, in a way, I think it's kind of nice to have a different take on it. And for somebody like me personally, if I was learning, I think this would be more beneficial than just watching somebody build a box because you can see a lot more of the detail of everything that's going into it. And because it's in rapid succession, it's like, cut it this big, cut these grooves into it. It's almost just like a quick step-by-step. Here's the 10 steps to make this box and everything that you need for it. It's an interesting situation that we deal with surprisingly often. The, the sort of straightforward way to do what we do is to build a thing, 
film all of you building something and then cut down all of the building into some, just the key parts and then present that to the audience. Right. Because uh, we know that if we present all of it at one-to-one, it's boring, takes too long. Right. And But then there's a fine line between not showing enough to where it just seems like this thing just happened. Um, mm-hmm. And we all have we all sort of favor different kind of different sort of visual descript- descriptive uh, presentation techniques. I liked a lot of middle shots, and I, for me, I really like showing how it's assembled. Because when I when I when I s- watch something, I don't need to know the techniques because I'm going to do the techniques my own way. I really just want to see proportions uh, and what their strategy for bringing it all together. Did they use clamps? Did they? Did they do that? I don't need to see a lot of close-ups of the table saw and things like that. The so from that standpoint, I think like you know the the digital kind of assembly thing is really interesting. I think what's different about what we do is that we kind of just keep going even if we miss something or didn't have it. There's a ton of footage that I wish I had for the container house, but there's just no way to film twelve hours a day every single day for uh, you know twenty weeks. Um, yeah. Has there been any situation where you found yourself where there was like something so crucial that you needed to go back and get a shot? Or is there usually just like something else that you have that exists that can slot in there to show it? I haven't gone back and reshot anything or recreated everything. Everything was from sort of in context. Um, if there's any sort of pickups, it would just be like a demo of a product once it's done. But no, my, my sort of thing is like, I'll just sort of work my way around it. And, and that's the inherent efficiency of what we do is that we're not the the making is the authentic thing and the production is the kind of haphazard or uh, contrived part of it. it. It's why we're much more like a like documentary filmmakers than we are like people making a TV show, because if you're making a TV show, you just recreate everything around the premise of the show. Everything's a stage and a prop. What we're doing is actual real live things that we just happen to be documenting to some degree of completeness and then looking at the footage that we have and figuring out the best way to sort of present it to the audience. Right. I always think it is like, sometimes I wonder, would I be more efficient? Like if, if my whole goal was just efficiency in video making, would I be better off for like a lot of the repetitive tasks, tasks where you really can't tell exactly what's going on because it's like such an early stage of the build where you're not seeing finished pieces anyway. I've toyed with the idea of, so like, why don't I just like go out there and spend three hours getting really awesome shots of me using a joiner or a planer or whatever, and then just like have like 25 different awesome looking clips that I could then edit into my videos. I've never actually done it because then I'm like, oh, what if it's like a cloudy day or a sunny day or I'm wearing different clothes or I shave my beard or whatever. And then like, there's going to be these weird inconsistencies in it. So I never actually do it, but those are probably the things that you would think about if you were making like a real TV show. You're talking about sort of assembly lining content. Yeah. Just having like my own B-roll, like custom B-roll. I don't think continuity is the reason not to do it. I think it's just a... it just to me seems very like Dukes of Hazard. Like there's like scenes <laughs> in uh, like car chases from like some of those old yeah. shows 
where it's like they wouldn't film a specific car chase. They'd have clips of the car jumping over something or making a turn, and they'd kind of just splice right. them together and use the same ones over and over <laughs> and over again. I never thought about it that way, but yeah, they must have done that. So I don't think the danger is in the lack of continuity. I think the danger is in the complacency or putting an emphasis on efficiency above all else. And I think when right. that happens is when you start becoming uh, Applebee's or the Olive Garden or something like that. It's not that Applebee's or the Olive Garden have terrible recipes or like bad menu selections. They just execute like they're executing at scale in a very broad way. Whereas a, a more individualized restaurant is like thinking intentionally about each thing. Now, that doesn't mean Applebee's can't have a certified banger on the menu. They probably have a few. <laughs> um, but it just means when, you're, when your overall approach is always looking at efficiency and, and how do you just keep recreating things with the least amount of effort possible, that approach is more dangerous than the actual instances of it. On the flip side, though, you know, it's like I've been doing a lot of editing, too. So I've, I've been thinking about what's necessary and what isn't. Like, is, is it important mm -hmm. to show these sort of uh, these steps that are kind of obvious? Like, oh, I'm going to rip the board down to the width and then I'm going to cross cut it to length. I mean, that right. those techniques are probably in every the majority of your videos and 90 percent of the videos you make. Yeah. But when, when you talk to people about what they like out of like television shows and things like that, sometimes they're uh, uh, an important part of it. It's not all just plot driven. They like sort mm -hmm. of patterns of characters. They like the way sort of Kramer always enters, uh, right. uh, you know, the room, in. right? Even if they've already seen it before, you know, you'll see sort of uh, mashups of TV shows that people really like where it'll be, you know, 15 clips of the character doing kind of the same thing, but doing it a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the payoff of like being a fan of something and watching it over the long term is that you recognize the patterns, but then, and because you recognize the patterns, you see the, the micro differentiation between those steps in the pattern. Oh, Chris, yeah. you got it. Chris got a new woodpecker thing, or he's, he's got different hand positioning, or there's these things are, patterns are comforting and they establish familiarity. They establish where you are in the build. And they also, for, for the people that have really watched all your videos, they'll pick up on these like little micro differences. Yeah. And I think that beyond that, even if it, it would be bad if it was the same footage and people were recognizing that, but I think just having there, there's a pace that you're trying to achieve depending on who you are and what you're going for. Like, obviously we have different goals in the pacing that we both individually go for. You're very much like a step-by-step, -step, like then you do this next, you do this. Like you've even talked about it before. Like I remember you saying you had like a certain amount of, time that you even wanted to spend on a step and like you felt like if you couldn't achieve it in that amount of time then you're not explaining it the right way or, or i can't remember how you said it yeah but although that's more but, of like an editing thing because i i it's, it's more of a way to get me through the edit without trying to recreate the project in the editing process okay um so um well what i was gonna say is like if you if i go back and look at my old videos they were a little bit slower and then i felt like i got into shortening things up a little bit. And I don't know if it was for the better or for the worse, but like I would just shave, you know, three seconds off here, five seconds off there. And it would all add up to, you know, a minute and a half or two minutes off the total length of the video. And I've actually kind of gone back and relaxed myself a little bit because I don't know. I think I, 
I like that pace more. Like that's what just naturally appeals to me more. And that's not saying that it's going to appeal to everybody, but I, I'm sure some people out there are like me and some people are the opposite, but I like it better. And so that's what I'm going to go for. And I think that I had this like fear that if I was going too slow, people were going to be tuning out. And so now I didn't, I'm actually just kind of realizing it right now as I'm talking, but a lot of the time when I'm editing, I notice in about the first two minutes or so, I'll be a lot quicker with things. And then like, I kind of relax the pace a little bit as you get deeper into the video. And I think that the reason that I do that is that probably because if you're invested to that point, you're in, you're invested. Like, you know, once you're in for eight minutes, you're probably in for 14 minutes, you know, unless an alarm goes off or whatever. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Like I, I just, I didn't even realize that I was doing it, but now that I'm saying it, yeah, I, I kind of do like a quick pace in the beginning and then kind of slow down to my old pace as things progress. Yeah. For me, when I have missing footage or the anticipation of something kind of missing and I have to figure out a way to patch it in, that creates a certain anxiety, which makes me not want to start to edit or can yeah. kind of slow me down until I get my head around a way sort of through it. And so that's one of the reasons why overshoot isn't because I'm going to use it, but it just lets me when I, when I'm transitioning mentally from like building to editing, it just helps me sort of think, Oh, I'm going to have a surplus of stuff. So this is going to be easy. There's, right. there's nothing, so, there's no figuring out. It's just labor. It's a little like safety net. Exactly. If all, if all else fails, I'll have this to, to rely on. So speaking of that, I know you've been building some small stuff again, and I'm sure you're still doing a bunch of editing, right? Uh, yeah. So as this podcast airs, I will have just released the glass uh, deck video. Oh, nice. So finally got that out. That project's been mostly done for, for a while, but just haven't got around to sort of editing it and getting the sort of final shots that I wanted. Mm-hmm. It's it's pretty cool. Um Photographing lights outside is a little bit tricky to really capture exactly what what it looks like. Yeah, I think I would be leaning on uh, Photoshop pretty heavily for something like that. Right. And, uh, you know, so I got some cool time. uh, You know, the sort of last piece that I was waiting for was a was a nice time lapse of showing actually how bright the lights are and how you can't tell that they're on during the daytime. And even when it's like starting to dim and get dust, you still can't really tell because they're just like LED strip lights, which aren't that bright. But then as the the sun goes down, you know, the, the intensity by contrast keeps going up. Um, so we got a right. cool time lapse of that. Totally different project from from what we normally do. But what I've been building lately is I'm really thinking a lot about, uh, you know, the more minimal tool set uh, and doing right. projects with that. Because I think the way my channels are going to sort of go going forward is I'm going to be doing more and more big projects like building whole houses, things like the glass mm-hmm. deck, these like kind of big construction or installation type projects, which aren't exactly always as accessible uh, as the sort of DIY projects I've done in the past. Now, mm-hmm. I think it's important to do these things because one, I want to. And two, because uh, there's a lot more people doing DIY furniture stuff now, so I don't think there's a there's a shortage of that kind of content uh, the same way there was when I got started. But I am, am going to be really focusing on the, the super basic uh, tool set projects. I did, I released the, the, the simple shelves, which you can do with just circular saw, drill, and sander. I'm doing another one with that same sort of three tool set um, where I'm building a sofa all out of 
two by sixes. The I released the image of it on Instagram and it was fun. Circular saws are so much better now than they used to be. Like, and I'm not talking like the, you know, the, the fancy fest tool track saw. I'm actually thinking now that like, I'm more accurate with just holding a speed square with my circular saw than I am using like a compound miter saw. I could see that because maybe, I guess with a miter saw, you're reliant on like how well it's set up. Like once you've started cutting, there's really nothing you can do to course correct at all. Right. But there probably is a little bit of like, you know, muscle mechanics that goes into using a circular saw. I think it's also just the nature of, you know, when you first start woodworking, you really have to understand the thickness of a pencil line. And that when you yeah. copy a piece, the the line is actually a little bit farther out than the piece itself. Um, mm-hmm. And then you say, oh, if I, let's say I cut my first piece and I want to make the second piece the same length as the first piece. I put the first piece down on top of the stock and then draw a line at the end. Whereas the first piece, when you drew that line, you left the line (laughs) and then people get used to leaving the line and then they leave the line on the second piece. And then the second piece is just a line uh, longer than the first piece. Right. So what I really like about the speed square and circular saw is you can get the blade right up (laughs) and you can actually see where, where the little, not just the thickness of the metal on the blade, but the thickness of the tooth, where that really lines Mm -hmm. up relative to the line. And yeah, so made a sofa. Uh, it was another quick project and I'm trying to introduce like things like I don't show any fasteners in it. So that was the kind of design agenda was to come up with an assembly process and sort of design where all the screws are hidden from the outside. So that makes it just a little bit more than basic, even though the tool set is super basic. I found some really actually some really nice cushions from Home Depot that were like they're chair cushions, but they're pretty thick. And it's mm-hmm. like each cushion is the seat and the back sort of sewn together. Okay. So it's like 30 bucks each. So uh, $90 for the cushions and then like maybe six two by sixes. And it like, it looks pretty good. It's, I mean, I use cedar, so that's kind of cheating, uh, uh, you know, versus yeah, like, like the two by sixes you would get from a lumber yard or something. Right. They're a little more premium. But the, the if you really went through and selected the nice ones, the, the concept would apply. Cool. So uh, since we're a man down today, we figured we'd just do some questions. So some Instagram listeners were nice enough to submit a bunch. So let's pop into those. This episode's brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community for creators. With over 25,000 classes that focus on things like design, business, and more, you'll discover countless ways to fuel your curiosity, creativity, and career. So whether you're looking to discover a new passion, start a side hustle, or gain new professional skills, Skillshare is there to keep you learning, thriving, and reaching those goals. So I actually used Skillshare for a few different reasons. Probably the one that impacted my life the most was learning how to use Premiere Pro, which is the video editing software that I use. And the thing that really worked for me is that these are super thorough classes, We're not talking about like, you know, little quick tip five minute videos. These are courses that are several hours long and broken down into chapters that can take you from knowing absolutely nothing to being a solid beginner, an intermediate, or even a pro if you stick with it through several courses. And for me, the best way to learn is to follow along rather than just watching. So I could work on a project concurrently while I was going through the course and watching the videos. And that way, everything that I was doing was actually sinking in and it worked. Like, you know, now I can use the software. I use it daily. 
Uh, I also want to try out some other courses. So I've been meaning, I've been really meaning to learn Fusion 360 and they do have some very in-depth classes on that. So that's my next thing that I need to tackle and I'm going to do it, I swear it. So right now, Skillshare is giving our listeners two months for free. That's unlimited access to their more than 25,000 classes for nothing. Just go to Skillshare.com slash ModernMaker and you can start. Again, that's Skillshare.com slash ModernMaker. And there's going to be a clickable link in the podcast description as well. All right. Thanks, Skillshare. Back to the show. All right. So the first one comes in from Woodpasture. And he says, if, you're start, if you were to start a non-woodworking making business, what would it be? I don't know if you already have a canned answer for this. So I will say that the first thing that pops into my head is that I think I would still try to keep it as something that centers around content creation just because I really enjoy that aspect of it. Like I would say I almost enjoy that aspect of it as much as I enjoy the building aspect of it. They're kind of, I kind of see it as like 50, 50. So I would try to do that around something else that I enjoy or that I'm passionate about or that I want to get deeper into. So I could do something that was design related, could do something about shoes, gaming, technology. Those are all things that I'm interested in. And I've actually even thought, um, because I like filming things too, it would be cool to almost just do like a deeper look into just like everyday things like, you know, cooking an egg or something like that and just like show it at the the macro level or the micro level and see all the detail of, of just like, I don't know, everyday beauty or something like that. I'd, I'd have to flush it out, but that's where my mind goes to first. Yeah, I, I would tend to think format and pace that you want to work at first and think subject matter later because I don't think subject matter is what we like. I think we we identify subject matters because they were introduced to us at a pace uh, and with a reward system that we found enjoyable. So from a business opportunity, I would probably do something around 3D printing. So I think 3D printing is like, it, it's gone in sort of surges of being overhyped and then undervalued. And I think right now it's sort of undervalued. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was really overhyped like a couple years ago, but the machines are getting a lot better. You know, people aren't going to be as interested in 3D printed jewelry anymore because they've seen that at every design store and every museum now. Uh, The sort of initial infatuation with it is over and people are kind of like, all right, is this actually sort of useful in a domestic setting? It's obviously very useful in a professional design or a professional sort of fabrication for rapid prototyping and all these kind of precision things. But it does that vision of that you know, was sort of rammed down our throats so often. Oh, there's going to be a 3D printer in every home and you won't actually buy stuff on Amazon. You'll just download a file and then print it, (laughs) which is so silly. And I've made this analogy a ton of times, but once more, that's like saying the minute we had inkjet printers, you don't buy books. You just download the PDF and then print it and then bind it yourself. Right. You could do that, but it wouldn't be nearly as good of a finished product as buying the book. Right. So I think there's an opportunity around 3D printing now that they've gotten a lot better. And I don't think it's, though, around getting stuff where it's transmitted digitally. I think it's around customization and fit. It's why one of the successful categories of 3D printed projects like prosthetics has made so much sense because it... These are things that are in such intimate contact with a specific human body that they need to be tailored to that person's tasks that they're doing, right? What are their habits that they need that prosthetic to function at? 
And they also need to be tailored to the physical dimensions of that person uh, as an individual. So I think that there's like you could do a whole series of where you document your daily routine. Okay, I get up. You know, I reach for my toothbrush. I wish it was here instead of here. Oh, 3D print the thing that makes it exactly where you want, right? You know, in the car, you might make it a perfect place that holds your phone at the right thing so you can use it for GPS while you're driving. I think there, there's a, you know, the the speed and versatility of, of going from any form that you can 3D model to 3D printing could make all these kind of like smoother transitions into physicality of your day-to-day life by uh, making all these sort of custom components to it. Going, going back to what you were saying before about like there was that, how you said it comes in waves kind of. Do you think that that's because like the technology's new and it hits the public where people start understanding it and you're like, oh man, this is the the next, this is the future. This is what everyone's going to be using. And then like we come to realize that it's not advanced enough yet for people to like really start implementing at a critical mass and it takes five years and that's why like that next wave comes and now we're hitting that point where it's gotten good enough and cheap enough? No, it's because uh, a lot of the media around it introduces it incorrectly. They lie, right? (laughs) They just They they lie and exaggerate. Um, So you're seeing this right now as I keep seeing these stupid articles coming from legitimate sort of media companies saying like, oh, check out this house. This house was 3D printed in one day for less than $4,000. Could this solve homelessness? It is such irresponsible, terrible journalism. They were showing a a really expensive, massive 3D printer that printed not a house, but what would essentially relate to the structural framing of the house. Basically, the two by fours. So they should have said this thing did the structural framing for the house because they show a house with windows, roofing, uh, uh, doors, did not 3D print electricity, all these things, which are all assembly components from off the shelf things. This house did not assemble those things. It just printed the shell and then people came in and assembled it. Um, And again, I could get a, you know, uh, me and Mike could frame that same house probably faster than the 3D printer could print the same uh, uh, structural components. So I think one is a a whole lot of articles like that, which sound very sci-fi and futuristic and people get curious, have resulted in a whole lot of clicks on 3D printing was totally not accurate or, 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 or just such a gross exaggeration that I think that's where the sort of letdown came. So it wasn't about the machines catching up. Because it's the same way. It's like we've had inkjet printers for a really long time. Inkjet printers mm-hmm. have caught up. They've gotten better. Uh, they've had plenty of generations of improvement. But you still wouldn't print the PDF versus buying that because innovation doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not like the the remote, the type of 3D printers that you'd have in your home have gotten a lot better. But so have the mm-hmm. ones at an industrial scale. And so has injection molding everything else gets better too so mm-hmm. you don't just sort of switch from a, a a centralized method of production to a decentralized method uh, because the centralized methods are going to improve just as often just as fast as the decentralized ones so i think the it was that letdown of sort of a lot of uh poorly researched things or over promising 
from both the 3D printing industry and then also from the sort of tech media that covers it that led to that kind of like, oh, wait, there isn't a lot to do with it. And then I think the other focus was that it was so much on the printing and not enough on the 3D modeling. Right. Yeah, I wasn't saying in terms of like, it's going to replace the whole, you know, mass producing things. Everyone's just going to print their things. I just mean like in terms of high usage and like, you know, a lot of people actually having access to it. We start talking about it a lot sooner than it's realistic for people to have access to it. And then it kind of dies down and then it comes back. So like, even if you look at something like virtual reality, like in the nineties, people were talking about virtual reality video games. And obviously it was technology was not there. And now we're getting we're, I mean, we're there in some sense where it's still cumbersome to use, but it's getting better and better. And like now I would say is the first wave of it, you know, 25 years later exactly. or whatever, where there's actually a large scale adoption of it. Yeah, I, I, I think that's actually a really I think that's the appropriate sort of uh, uh, analogy is that remember the lawnmower man? <laughs> yeah, that's what I was just thinking of when I said the 90s. Right. Uh, and then like the Matrix really sort of made people really made twisted people's brain and sort of think about it differently. And now people are actually sort of starting to dabble with it on the consumer thing. But the thing that I still think might be way more pervasive and actually more interesting to me, at least would be augmented reality is there's not too many moments in life where I want to be totally immersed in a type of media. There's a Mm -hmm. lot of times in life where I'm doing one thing and I could use a little bit of information as an overlay on top of it to either be less bored in a task that doesn't require all of my attention or to actually help with the task. So like, I don't, I can't see myself wearing virtual reality goggles and just being like, okay, I'm going to walk around in the avatar world, but I could imagine myself wearing some sort of glasses or having an augmented reality experience through the windshield of my car and actually having the GPS sort of sending directions as an overlay on that windshield. So I'm not looking down to my right to the phone, right? Yeah, that would be awesome. This sort of overlay of of that, I think to me is, is way more fascinating than separating from reality and going completely immersive into something. And I feel the same way with 3d printing is I don't want to make, you know, uh, although I, I, I do think there is sort of a formal, like a form finding freeness in going from 3d model to 3d print. I think you can make shapes and objects that are just like, defy a lot of like conventional understandings of making um right. and i think those those will be explored and are being explored very well for me it's more i'm looking at that sort of aug- how to create that filter right how do i create that that screen that just use 3d printing to to make everything a little bit more customized to me kind of a thing yeah all right let's move on to another question so ethan carter from Ethan Carter Designs, wants to know, are there any materials slash mediums that you want to try this year that you've never tried? So I know, Ben, you already use a lot of different mediums, so that might be harder for you to... For me, it's kind of a layup. Like, metal's the obvious <laughs> next one that I need to get into. And I'm going to do it this year. I swear it. I'm, I'm going to set some time aside. I'm going to see if, if Eric's down for it. I'm going to cut works. Try to go to a shop and, and design like an easy project, something that I can knock out the metal portion of real quick. I've actually got a few designs that I've already started working on just based off of like the last time that I went there and got that little one hour crash course in welding. So there there are some like simple projects that I want to try that are still, you know, like a medium sized project. But like I want to make sure that the metal working part of it is very simple. So as a beginner with almost no skill, I can pull it off 
and it's not going to like ruin the look of a, of a otherwise decent project. So I'll do some sort of metal wood project that probably the metal will be sort of an infrastructure, but the main look of it will still be carried out by the wood, but it would be something that you couldn't do with just wood. Otherwise, what's the point of using the metal? No, I'm, I'm excited to see you, you take up metal working. Uh, Eric's awesome, but Eric's going to, Eric's probably going to encourage you to use TIG and a lot of stuff that's you know, more resembling a professional metal working shop. So it'll be interesting to see right. if you sort of bypass the the beginner level stuff and just go right to like TIG welding, stainless steel or something like that. Yeah. Um, versus doing the sort of out in the, the driveway kind of thing with a with a basic MIG welder, no gas and an angle grinder, which is mm-hmm. which is what the, the, the most of us uh, uh, sort of do. Yeah, the more natural starting spot probably. From... From an interest standpoint, the material I will work with at some point, not sure if it's going to happen this year or not, uh, based on how things are shaping up, would be ceramics. When I when I think of a new material, I think of more of like the material quality that I think is irreplaceable or unreplicatable anywhere else. To me, like ceramics, you know, it has the material quality of stone or something permanent, something that will last forever. I mean, we're still digging up previous civilizations and finding little preserved bits of broken pottery so the the material quality of ceramics really stands out but because it's in a sort of uh a manipulatable sort of plastic state before it gets fired Mm -hmm. you can do really expressive things form wise to it and i still think that using digital fabrication like cncs or 3d printing or even woodworking, the, the sort of mechanical processes of woodworking to, to make things straight could lead to some really cool molds or presses, or you can make really advanced tools uh, from our other skill sets that would allow us to manipulate clay in a way that's different than someone that's uh, maybe worked with clay their whole life. Uh, when I would look at a new material, I'd want to look at how do I bring the, my area of investment uh, from these other materials and experiences to that new material so that I have a different, fresh sort of outlook on how I can make stuff out of it. Yeah, it'd be a good opportunity to make something because you associate very organic, natural shapes with that sort of thing to sort of make something that was more like architectural or geometric looking, I guess, would be a new twist on it. Right, or, I mean, it, it might just replace certain things it might be oh i'm gonna make a table and the top is all made out of tiles that i made right right oh that'd be cool it might be a kitchen island um where some of the tiles are actually canisters where you can store things it could be a media console where the front paneling of it is all ceramics i think anytime or it could be outdoor furniture right if you think about you know uh, uh glazed pottery like it it's very uv resistant uh way more so than wood um and paint and things like that so it could be a really great way to to make things that actually get a lot of direct sun onto them like a window seat or something like that so i think that i I would look at the actual material advantages uv resistant incredibly durable but fragile and not flexible and then try to find projects that really minimize the bad things and maximize the good things gotcha all right Another question. So this one, we actually get asked this a lot. So maybe we should save it until Mike's here. And I, I'll just answer it real quick. You don't have to answer it if you don't want, Ben. But several people asked, which project of each other's would you want to make? So I will say the bucket stool 
that you made just because that's probably the most made thing, you know, the most replicated thing that you've designed. Um, and so it'd be interesting to try to come up with a new take. Obviously, I wouldn't just do it the way Crayons. that you did it. That's it. <laughs> Don't sit on it. Don't put it in the sun, but it looks cool. No, but I think it'd be cool to, to come up with like a new take on just that idea. Maybe even do it in a different process, but just that idea of the simplicity of it, but come up with something that has my own twist on it. Yeah, it's interesting when they say projects, right? Because the immediate thing I would think would be, oh, I want to do something with crayons now, which really isn't the project. It was more that right. kind of specific utilization of a of a ready-made. And it's really more just seeing you experiment with one thing and it made me thinking what I would, you know, oh, what, what I want to experiment with. And I might not do crayons, but it made me think, oh, what other things, when I saw that project, it made me think, man, just people really like it when you mix in vibrant, colorful things that they have a strong association with and a sense of familiarity yeah. towards. So I don't think that the, uh, you know, just necessarily doing crayons for everything, but it's thinking about what are the other things that are, we we don't even notice how like brightly colored they are because they're so part of like our, our, our everyday life. So <laughs> I think it's more that I would think about that kind of experimentation and being like, why can't I add this thing to to something else? But uh, in terms of actual sort of projects, it would probably be your like one-legged nightstand, taking that sort of concept mm -hmm. of like, oh, if we're anchoring something to a wall or we have the opportunity to anchor something to a wall, that means that we can have a visually much more dynamic base mm -hmm. because it only has to be strong in compression in one place and we're relying on the right. wall anchoring to keep it from tipping over. Um, so it's, there, there's, it's more likely that I'd borrow from departure points than from saying like, Oh, I want to make a, you know, a bad Larry. Here's the, the sort of geometry right. that I'm working with. Let's take a break to thank Duke Cannon for sponsoring this episode. So Duke Cannon makes and sells superior quality grooming goods for hardworking people. So that would be things like soap, shaving products, shampoos, and so forth. They make everything here in the United States and actually partner with active duty military personnel to help develop and test their products. The thinking is nobody is out there working harder than an active soldier. So if it can hold up for them, there shouldn't be any problem holding up for the rest of us. And most importantly, Duke Cannon is committed to giving back to the men and women serving our country. And that's why a portion of their proceeds goes directly to supporting veteran causes. Ben, you recently got to try out some Duke Cannon stuff for the first time. So what'd you think? I first heard about Duke Cannon from our buddy, John Malecki, who highly recommended them. And the, the two products that really stick out to me are the Bloody Knuckles Hand Repair Balm. If I'm working with concrete or doing a lot of construction work out in the desert, it's really dry. Your hands can get kind of destroyed. And this was something that was a little bit more substantial and lasted a little bit longer uh, for both a repair and sort of preventative uh, standpoint for, for keeping my hands uh, usable. And the other product that I like is the soap on a rope, is as gimmicky as that sounds. Like, I've always just thought soap dishes are just the most disgusting thing <laughs> they are kind of nasty right like they're just nasty so being able to hang the soap in the shower is like a huge upgrade it also i feel like lets the soap it makes it easier to rinse the soap off and then it's not sitting in a pool of its own soap scum just in general though their their products are awesome really like the branding they look good you can they look good being left out which to me is like a, a, the ideal of any daily use product 
any product that I use on a daily basis, I don't want to have to like put it back in a cupboard. I want to have it handy so I actually am motivated to use it. That being said, that means it's always going to be in the sort of visual realm. And these are products that are not just effective, but they look good on the shelf. Nice. So right now you can get free shipping on orders over $35 and save 15% off your first order by using the promo code MODERNMAKER. So that's all capital letters and one word, MODERNMAKER, for 15% off. All right, thanks, Duke Cannon. Now back to the show. All right, this one is going to be purely for you, Ben. And this, I don't know if this is something that you address in the Container Home series or that you have already talked about, but ZCK Bailey asks, for your container home, why are the containers not put together? Was it purely an aesthetic reason or was it budgetary? So I think he's asking, why are they a series of separate containers rather than like cutting you know, doorways into different containers? Right. So I, I get a lot of these questions and the, the my immediate resistance to that question is like, well, why shouldn't they be the way that they are, right? Uh, yeah, I don't think he's asking it even that. He, I think he wants to know, like, is it cheaper to do it that way? Uh no, it's just that uh, I think, well, it, it's a lot of reasons. Um, one, I think the more you connect containers, the less useful they are as containers. So, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously you have to, a container is not a house. So you have to manipulate it to do that. The more you manipulate it, the less value you have as, <laughs> the less valuable it is as a ready-made object, Right. So people are saying, why don't you, you know, I've seen container houses where they go, oh, containers are narrow. So let's cut the the full sides off of two of them and then put them together so it's a double wide container. Mm -hmm. That is doable, but you've inherently destroyed all the structural value of the container. You might, and it would have been a lot cheaper just to buy corrugated metal, build the building, and then clad it with that. So one is, so that's not an answer into and of itself. That's, but that's one of the sort of the parameters of thinking that leads me to sort of doing that. The other was I originally was just starting from one container because I felt like uh, the more you t- make L-shaped buildings or bigger buildings, the less universal it is. So by sort of building a a one bedroom house, one bedroom, one bathroom house with a kitchen in a single 40-foot container. To me, that was what I wanted to get done and demonstrate. Then I came across the actual conditions of uh, permitting, which at that time uh, required a minimum of 700 square feet. So I had to oh. add square footage to the the project, and I didn't want to uh, uh, connect things um, just to sort of increase that and then use that sort of lose that universality of that one container right. is I can show how to build a one bedroom house or I can show how to build a two bedroom house. And then lastly, from a sort of practical standpoint, containers are really narrow. So if you, if you, uh, try to put a bathroom in them, uh, it's very difficult because there's no room for a hallway and a room. You can't have a, you know, they're only about once you insulate and put drywall, you only have about seven feet of width. So a hallway is typically 30 inches to three feet. So you don't have room for the hallway to that. So that means you have to go through a room to get to another room or it's just an open mm-hmm. loft space. So the more you kind of, and if you go double wide, then you're cutting out huge pieces of things and there's no structural integrity left to the container. So 
uh, to me, what made the most sense was if these things are meant to be pods, let's let them be pods. And then let's do, which is also ideal for this climate, uh, let's do more indoor-outdoor living uh, where it's like courtyards in between. Um, And one, I think it's just a lot cooler. And I like this idea of, I mean, this is a vacation house. So if, if I'm staying there and I have some friends come over, they're staying in the guest house, it'll be nice to, that we each have a sort of our own little pods um, that are all completely self-contained with their own bathrooms and stuff. But then we can sort of hang out in the courtyard in between. Yeah, that, that all makes total sense, especially so I guess to the one point about if you were making a double wide and just cutting out an entire wall. Would it almost be cheaper? Like you're almost just doing it at that point just because you want the exterior look of a container. It almost seems like there might be even a cheaper way to go about it and and accomplish that same thing rather than getting two containers and cutting out a wall from each one and putting them together. From the idea of making them separated, that was, if you were to ask me this question and to guess Mm -hmm. why you did that, I would have said, if you look at the whole space and kind of what you talked about, the indoor-outdoor living you took fewer materials and made a bigger area, a, a bigger living area by using what would be like the negative space, essentially. Exactly, right. It's also very windy out there. So by sort of arranging the series of containers, we create like a little mini sheltered courtyard. The other gotcha. thing that people have to remember too is that people always f- forget that the sun doesn't come straight down. It's uh, Even at noon, it's still coming at an angle that's slightly tilted towards the south. Um, right. So having a courtyard can create a lot of shade even without any sort of overhang. And by positioning the containers in the hot desert, you're creating a lot of different shade breaks um, that that create this sort of nice courtyard right in the center of the complex. The other thing is that this house is small square footage wise. It's only 700, just a little over 700 square feet. That is tiny. That's like a third the size of the average house being built in the U.S., but it's spread out over a lot of areas. So it's creating a lot of usable sort of indoor-outdoor spaces, even though it's a really small actual interior footprint. So if you only had a 700-square-foot house that was all connected, if you have like you know a bunch of people staying there, acoustically, you have like not as much isolation because the sound is going to travel through the vibrations of all the materials. So deconnecting de- de- them also makes a lot of sense from that way. You can have a, still have a really small amount of square footage, but you can have privacy. And when you look at like the types of people that go out and rent a, a, uh, a house, an Airbnb out in Joshua Tree, it's often like a couple of couples. You know, if you try to cram four people into a 700 square foot house that's all connected one that's not a lot of air um you know uh yeah. in there but also it's just not going to be as much sort of like uh, uh acoustical pri- privacy as well yeah people like to uh right. get intimate while they're on vacation exactly. <laughs> they're away from the kids all right anyway uh this one's not really a question i guess it's it's disguised as a question but hack zerman wants to know Who's going to interrupt Ben if Mike is not on this show? <laughs> I guess that'll that'll be my job. Uh, let's see. Night weekend, <laughs> night weekend woodworking says the Powerball is seven hundred and fifty million dollars tonight. How does your life change if you win? What do you do differently? Uh-oh. Build a bigger five containers instead of th- no. I don't know. Um, I don't know. It's just not something I I think about. Like I don't. You know what's funny. I don't dwell on the anomalous bad things that could happen any more than I do on the good things, right? Yeah. Like, 
it's also possible that an asteroid could impact the Earth. Uh, it's probably actually a right. greater chance of that than of winning the Powerball. <laughs> uh, Especially if you don't buy a ticket. Right. So, uh, no, I don't. I, I, I just don't. I feel like I barely have enough mental energy to really analyze and think deeply about the things I actually can do. So those those sort of wild hypotheticals aren't aren't really there. Also, it's like, to, to me, like winning the lottery is like playing a video game with a cheat code. Like it's not actually that much fun. Like playing. Yeah, something. So where my head initially went is this is one of my hypotheticals that I used to ask people. And it was, would you rather earn $5 million or win $25 million? I, I just threw those numbers right. out there. But it's always basically win a huge sum of money or earn a still pretty good sum of money, but significantly smaller. And I truly think 99% of people would be much happier earning that smaller amount of money than winning the larger one. But like 95% of people who answer that will say that they'd rather just win the bigger sum of money. Yeah. Oh, I do know of something that I would, if, if I did win that 700 million, I would probably start a company that was solely focused on figuring out desalinization, like how to turn ocean water into fresh water. It'd be something like that. It'd be something that's like, what's something that's not economically practical right now? Right. People aren't investing enough into it because they don't see an immediate return on that investment. And then deploy all the capital towards one sort of, you know, uh, humanity helping situation like that. Um, so that would, uh, that's what I would spend it on. Figuring out how to desalinate water. There you go. Uh, let's see here. So we're, we're getting pretty late. So let's go. Woby Designs, he asked, Pop-Tarts versus Donuts. So I guess I'll use this as an opportunity to address the, uh, I think the idea of me loving Pop-Tarts has been overhyped. I do enjoy them, but I think I would be crazy if I said that they're better than Donuts. No, Donuts are way better. Yeah, it's like a fresh fried pastry versus something that's mass produced in a factory and put in a tinfoil bag. I think the Pop-Tart things just speaks to your sort of just general lifestyle habits of, (laughs) of, you know, you're not particularly worried about having too much sugar and you like this sort of convenience and have an affinity for like, I think things that are associated with your youth would be my guess. It'd be like, (laughs) it'd be like a combination of those three things. Uh, Well, I mean, it all started because I was, I was going to Joshua tree. I was driving out there. I like literally grabbed a box of pop tarts on my way out the door, and then it just so happened that I ate the whole box that day. Yes, and the legend was born that I that you sustain off uh, that you have a pop tart on you at all times. Yeah. All right. Why don't we uh, go into what we're obsessed with or what we're watching? I feel like we've turned that into like what we're watching, but it started off as what we were obsessed with. Yeah, we occasionally make an obsession because it's not always about a particular piece of content. Yeah. So. I'll go first, and mine actually is a piece of content this time. It's a, it's a YouTube channel, or at least like a segment within a YouTube channel. I think the channel is SB Nation, I want to say, but the show itself is called Rewinder. And all of the ones that I've watched are focused on basketball, but they may do them for any for other sports as well. But essentially what it is, is it'll look at like a big moment in sports or a pivotal moment. So like, you know, if it was like Michael Jordan's last shot in the sixth championship versus the Utah Jazz or uh, the the fight that happened like 10 years ago between the Pacers mm. and the uh, Pistons. And it'll focus on like this one pivotal moment 
And then it'll go back in time from there. So the episode will start with like, here's what happened. And we're going to work our way up to this thing and show you like all of the context of everything that went into making this a big moment. So they're super well produced and like they really dig into like the history of these little events, I guess you would say sporting events. And uh, they're they're really good. Like if if you're into sports or basketball and honestly even if you're not like they're just well-produced little mini documentaries that are kind of like the history of this moment yeah for for me it's a it's more of a discussion than a thing in hudson yards in new york they just opened up the big thomas heatherwick sculpture slash outdoor space and Mm -hmm. i don't think they have an official name for it yet but everyone's just calling it the vessel um and it looks like this giant basket. I've mentioned it before on the podcast. It just looks like this giant basket of staircases straight out of an Escher uh, drawing. Oh, yeah. So you'll see it all over Instagram. The project is fantastic. Go check it out. It's it's incredible. It's getting a lot of criticism. One, because it's this incredibly expensive thing. And it's not. it's sort of masquerading as a public space. But it's also sort of, you know, was... Uh, there's a lot of rules to it. It's not just the same as going in Central Park. And one of the most controversial things, which is in a sort of fluid state, is that when they originally uh, created it, you, you they said that they own all the image rights of anything, that's ta- any photos that are taken on the premises. Mm. And it's funny because people were just outraged by that. And on one hand, I get it. It's people hate the over the the, the manipulation and the willful intent to kind of to do these types of things. And so you can understand it also, though, from the developer standpoint, it's like, hey, we're going to spend a hundred over $100 million on something that doesn't actually produce direct revenue. And everyone in the world is going to want to go there and take Instagram photos. So let's just say that if they take any photos there, we own the photos and then make them sign yeah. some sort of waiver usage right or something like that to before they can enter the premise. And... If you went into an amusement park and did that, I think people would be more understanding. But because it's sort of on, there's that expectation set that this is this is like public space, it's really sort of pissed people off. So it was a great lesson in seeing how, you know, they've, they've kind of created a negative atmosphere around something that should be universally positive. Like, hey, we created this thing. No matter what you think of the architecture, come check it out. It's visually dramatic. You'll want to see it. Um, even if you think it's, not fully inhabitable or not fair to disabled people and all those kind of things, which are other criticisms that, uh, that they're getting, but seeing that sort of, it's such a of the moment kind of argument is that people are now aware that, you know, big companies, cities are, are realizing we want to create places that are so visually interesting that people want to come there to create photos that they then share on social media. That's, that's like a, a, a fully realized, uh, motivation for spending millions and millions of dollars. Like we are at that place in society. Y- largely, the the glass deck that I built is around that. It's on the property that I'm Airbnb, and it's just one additional really cool photo op that will right. uh, give people another reason to book that Airbnb versus something else. Now, the minute you realize that, people start thinking like, "Ooh, well, how do we take this farther? How do we own?" the the content and how we make money off of that and that's where i think it starts to get a little bit greasy and people are starting to push back to it so it's an interesting discussion and it's a project that's worth checking out 
Very cool. All right, I'm going to do my best mic imitation to throw it to the outro. So you can follow Ben at Benjamin Ueda. You can follow Mike at Modern Builds. And you can follow me, Chris, at Four Eyes Furniture. Collectively, we are at Modern Maker Podcast and at Maker Brand Co. on Instagram. And uh, I think that's it. I always feel like he spends somehow two minutes doing that, but I feel like I covered all the bases. Yeah, you got it. All right, well, we'll see you next week with Mike and we'll hear all about his uh, concussion. Whatever you, what at least what he remembers of it. That's right. All right. We'll hear some of it. All right. See you guys. Bye.